Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, uh, one of our first portfolio companies, uh, RDMD. We have uh, Ono Faber and Nancy Yu, the co-founders of RDMD. Uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, Ono, we uh, originally met, uh, I don't remember if it was 2014 or, or very early when you were working on Tap Talk uh, in the same building that the product on office w- yeah. was at. Um, why don't you talk about how you were doing Tap Talk, which was a very popular consumer social uh, product, to then coming up uh, with, with Nancy this idea for, for RDMD. Yeah, so the, we indeed met in 14, and uh, that was a year uh, that I started uh, getting some health issues. I started losing my hearing uh, on the left side, and then it turned out that I had a few tumors in my central nervous system, um, so on both hearing nerves and one in the spine and uh, got diagnosed with a rare disease. So at that point, uh, I didn't know much about the healthcare space, of course. Uh, It was, of course, a big shock um, to me. I was like 33, I think, at Mm -hmm. the time. Um, Yeah, but at the same time, like, I've been here, like, meeting lots of people um, that are doing amazing things, and not only in consumer uh, or in apps, but also in, uh, in healthcare technology and genetics. Uh, so I happened to have a very good friend uh, who was working in the gen- uh, genetics, and that's how I kind of got started. And later that year, like the next year, 15, uh, I had a tumor surgery, and uh, we ended up sequencing the tissue and doing our own research right. on it. So that's that was my segue. Yeah. <laughs> when was the moment where you said, wow, maybe this could be a company, not just all my own problem, but this could be a company, there's an opportunity here? Yeah, that that was that took a bit of time. Um I didn't immediately think, oh, it's going to start another company. Uh, of course, I wanted to spend time on it and learn about it, see what I could do. Um, so the first thing that uh, that ended up happening after uh, we were doing our own research is uh, we organized a hackathon, like a, a science event uh, with SVAI. And there were basically 300 people um, coming to, to hack on my data. Uh, so basically, I, I thought like, I had I had this uh, genetic data of my tumor and my blood, um, and at that point I thought like, what would other people be able to do with this? Because I realized it's not so easy to access this information, even if you know uh, how to look at it. So it ended up being an event. We had three hundred people uh, join. Google sponsored it, um, and it you know it excited the local community here. Uh, the science community that was working on my disease, uh, but also, um, yeah, it excited patients to contribute their data as well, which wasn't a possibility. And that's, I think, uh, for me, where I realized, ah, all this data is siloed, uh, and patients have the key to uh, unlock it, and uh, maybe we can do something. And uh, Nancy and I met. And uh, And Nancy, why don't we talk about your story? You were previously... uh you were in private equity, you were an investment banker, you were at 23andMe. Uh, and even before joining Ono, uh, you know, co-founding this with Ono, you were exploring different ideas. Um, so why don't you talk about how you navigated the idea maze within healthcare in terms of what you wanted to do next and then how you uh, ended up starting RDMD with Ono? Yeah, sure. Uh, I left uh, 23andMe to pursue a separate idea with somebody from the company. Uh, it was also, it was in genetics uh, for a, a somewhat rare condition and that um that kind of set us off on uh, one path and so that didn't work out after just two months and so i think i met ano around that time and we were we'd just been grabbing coffee and uh saw him do the hackathon which is super cool and i think we just you know sat and sat together every week and learned a lot and tried to just talk to a lot of different people about the industry and what the current challenges were in rare disease. So we really started with the problem. We had no solution um, and just kind of fell in love with the problem. Um, From my time in biotech and investment banking and in private equity, it was just clear that rare disease was just this um, 
this huge opportunity space where biotechs and pharma companies are really excited to develop programs, but it's there's just no infrastructure to support right. that. And so as a result, with all this new technology coming onto the market with new platform technologies and gene therapies and and different platform um, technologies in, in drug development, they didn't have any they didn't have anything to support them their programs when they hit the clinical stage right. of development. Even even zooming back out for a second, I'm curious how you narrowed in on rare disease because you know we sort of, you like to joke that your, uh, our friend Afton, um, who's also a veteran who runs Modern Fertility, has a very similar background to you, but she chose to go in fertility, and you sort of had a top down view of a lot of things that are going on in healthcare and rare disease seems like sort of a small niche. How did you settle in on that versus anything else you could have done in this space? Yeah, I think um, a lot of things contributed to that. I mean, one is just there is this long tail of rare conditions, 7,000 of them. And altogether, I think there's 30 million people in the U.S. that have rare diseases. So it's actually a huge problem. Uh, but there just hasn't been a great solution for them. Yep. Um, and so, I mean, meeting Anno also contributed to that. Yeah. Um, but one big theme is also just patient engagement. So, um, you know, 23andMe is one of the few companies that has engaged consumers broadly, but also patient and yeah. research communities to, to actually contribute their data to, to drive more research. And what better place to do that than in rare disease, where patients have a really, really large need that's totally unfulfilled and nobody's yeah. building anything for them. So it felt like it was a really great place to start this patient-centered approach to drug development because we really need to bridge those two right. worlds. Right. And um, just a last question on that sort of exploratory phase. What advice do you have for other people who are sort of, you know, just left a company like 23andMe and now are, you know, founder dating or idea dating in terms of when do you sort of to mimic real dating? It's like, when do you know it's the, it's the right one that you should really double down on it versus when do you know, you know, I should be really exploring the field more, both whether it's ideas or whether it's potential co-founders. Yeah, I don't think you can go into it with a timeline in mind. Um, that's really difficult. Uh, you can't say, I'm going to give this three months and we're going to go through all these founder dating questions <laughs> and we're going to prove the idea, yeah. whether it's it's good or bad, because I think you're going to be doing that for years and years. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, we kind of went into it with no expectations. I mean, a little bit of expectation. We were hoping that something right. would happen here, but really no expectations around the idea or how we would work together. And we did that for months and months and months. And it just got to a point where it was like, this is, this is really exciting. We've talked to 150 people. (laughs) I think we know a lot. Uh, let's talk to village. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. So you, you're, you're in village. You, you've identified the problem. Haven't yet fixed the solution, but you're having a lot of conversations. Uh, how does the story unfold from there? Um, I think so. Yeah. When, there have been a lot of iterations in like the way we thought we have to solve the problem. Um, I think the first, uh, for me, realization is like that, oh, Rare is actually very big. For me, it was kind of a given uh, to work in Rare. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, Scratch um, your own itch. Exactly, so yeah. So, <laughs> But it, it turned I was, frankly, a little bit surprised, too, that it was such a big problem. Um, and also, um, it, it's really a way to, I, I think it could be a gateway to, to lots of uh, potential solutions that could later be applicable to all kinds of uh, problems. It's, in rare disease, you have these low-hanging fruits. I think we, we developed a, uh, a bunch of series of prototypes uh, and products uh, you know, from, from the beginning. Um, having a website where patients could sign up, um, then creating a, a timeline for them, clinical timeline, and all the conversations we had with the industry partners to see like what is their problem, how can we accelerate this in a replicable way. Um, I think it's, it's just uh, the, the conversations that we constantly ended up having, the, the barriers we ran into, going back to the drawing board and like, keep iterating. Um, and we literally talked to, we talked to patients, we talked to KOLs, uh, key opinion leaders, uh, research doctors, uh, and industry uh, of all kinds uh, to, to constantly ask ourselves the hard questions. And uh, at some point, yeah, you, you have more of a clear vector and right. direction and you, and you build from there. 
Yeah. And how did the idea sort of evolve over time? Like what are different manifestations of products that you thought you were going to build and then end up being a bit different or different go-to-markets that you thought you were going to take and then you ended up shifting? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we first started off with hoping to sequence people. So, you know, we huh. thought, well, in rare disease, 80% of rare diseases are genetic, so why not sequence everyone? And that's mm-hmm. what Anna had started with with the hackathon. So it made a lot of sense. But what we found, and this was something we kind of already knew, especially from my time at 23andMe, is it's really hard to get the clinical data, um, that's this, the data that's in medical records, that actually defines how a patient is doing and um, what, how their health is. Um, so if you have a lot of genetic data, it may not be very useful because you don't know what it means. So the hardest part for the industry seemed to be collecting this clinical data. So that was a huge shift for us. Hmm. Um we, for, as one thing, we, we had originally had patients upload their own records, uh, pretty straightforward, and then we realized it was just really hard, uh, it was a tough process, and it was actually much more regulatory uh, compliant if we just did it for them, because then we could create that audit trail. So a lot of different uh, twists and turns, for sure. And how do you do it for them? Uh, we get their permission. And they sign an authorization, and then we contact their hospitals, and we request the records, and we make it accessible to them. Yeah, the first uh, the first version, they actually there was a version before they could upload their records, which was they could build their timeline, uh, they could build their own patient journey, yeah. uh, and then we realized, well, we can do that for them if they upload their records, and then we realized, well we can get the records for them. So it's sort of, it's sort of gradually evolved. And um, now it's basically a, a 10 minute sign up process and, th- and they're done yeah. and the rest is handled by us. Um, and, you know, we, uh, we really love to um, sort of do, do everything um, yeah, in house because you can build a product, you can do the operations, you can build a product um, we have a product for patients. We have a product for research. We have a product for our internal operations. And really doing the work and looking into the future is how can this replicate um, to as many uh, rare diseases yeah. as possible, um, building the product around this um, tailored to rare, we think is, uh, yes, leads to new, um, new ways and new solutions. Yeah. And how have you both thought about go to market, and where are you right now in, in that process? Um, yeah, we are. We have um, about ten programs active right now. Uh, we are signing up patients. Uh, that's and, uh, and each program. What does an example of a program mean? Uh, so one program, for example, we work on my disease. That's yep. <laughs> an example. Uh, so there we have uh, patients that that join the platform. Um, NF two. NF two. Yep. Yeah. Uh, they join. They uh, they sign an e-consent. They let us know which hospitals they've been, uh, and then we gather the information, right. the health information. And how many people have NF two uh, in the US? Ten thousand. Got it. So you get hundreds or thousands of people who have this. So uh, yeah, most most patients uh, that have the disease, you you will never be able to get in touch with them. Right. So 10,000 10, sounds like a lot, yeah. but even if you get a few hundred right. people on it, it's it's a big it's a data set. Size, it's, yeah. <laughs> so th- this is the, the thing with Rare, like, which is very different from the consumer space, right? right? Like if you don't have a billion users, you yeah. don't, <laughs> yeah. you, don't uh, yeah, you don't play. But right. here with Rare disease, like in, in some Rare diseases, you only have 100 patients in total. Yeah. So if you have like uh, 20 or 30, uh, right. it's really good. Um, and th- yeah, that, that's very different. So we build these communities. Uh, we work with foundations as well. Um, and then we work with like industry partners and the research doctors in the field. It's a lot of, um, yeah, we create these communities around the disease itself. Yeah. And what's been the most effective method of community build- or building these, getting these programs off the ground? Is it, is it partnerships? Uh, is it you know bottoms down up community building? But what's been most effective? Yeah, I mean we learn about new conditions through just either a research doctor or a pharma company that has a need or patients directly that reach out, and so we'll start a program if we see there's a clinical need. 
Um, a lot of our programs are in really early stage development where there may not even be any pharma programs, right. but a lot of them are in conditions where there are multiple pharma programs in development, but they really need our help to accelerate them and get to the next level and unblock them. So we have a pretty wide range. We kind of view ourselves as working uh, as a partner with these industry partners um, from when they start thinking about a new program to yeah. when they get their drug approved and even even further than that. Um, in terms of building community, um, word of mouth through patient uh, ambassadors, that yeah. has been really successful. So because this is a product that is uh, free to patients and we're providing them a service where uh, they get to contribute to research um, without needing to leave their house yeah. um, and be able to participate in a very private and de-identified way. Um, most people get really excited about that. So when you hear about it from another patient or from your community, you sign up because you want to help right. advance the condition. And are you, uh, do you have a lot of competition? Do you, are you the only people doing this? And if, if there isn't a lot of competition, I'm curious, what's the why not? Why not? Um, if this is such a compelling opportunity, why hasn't it been done you know, five years ago or why isn't it five years from now? What's the sort of the why mm. now for the business? Yeah. I mean... Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Uh, it's it's really incredibly difficult to do this uh, also in regulatory compliant way for each of these individual uh, communities. Uh, they can like build... So th there are communities that organize themselves in Facebook groups yeah. or in a foundation uh, or there are lots of like survey-based registries that are also launched. But if you want to work with clinical data and do data abstraction... Uh, built a data model there it's just a really difficult problem to solve um, it, it's really important and it's very valuable but it's really difficult for these communities to do that on their own yeah. uh, so we, we decided to start with like this hard problem right it's it's uh, it's it's easy to build another survey tool but that's not really gonna move the needle right uh, so we want to like really uh, f focus on something that the communities uh, want but have problems with doing on their own. Right. Yeah, and just, I mean, years ago, the medical records weren't even digitized. You know, when I was in college, they weren't even digitized. So now you have years and years of medical data that's been digitized that you can actually do research on. And then on top of that, the rapid decline in genomics costs has led to a huge increase in rare disease platform technologies like gene right. therapies. Um, and so because of that, uh, rare disease is now a thing. <laughs> yeah. There's actually a business, a, a very compelling business model for biotechs to pursue rare conditions. There's a lot of FDA incentives, um, increased exclusivity periods, uh, higher pricing on your drugs, faster and um, more, sh more short, sh shortened de development program timelines. Uh, and often you even have these uh, incentives for getting like a pediatric voucher work that you yeah. can go resell for a hundred million dollars. So there's a lot of incentives that have been baked in for the rare disease world. And so now it's becoming a really big area of interest for, for life sciences, but then there's no infrastructure to support it. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. If you, uh, if I look at my own disease, it's called NF2, uh, which uh, suggests there is another disease called NF1, which is the case. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they were, uh, there is actually a third one as well uh, that uh, was you they they used to diagnose people with the same thing called nf uh, and then they found out like oh it's actually completely genetic mutation mm -hmm. it's a different phenotype different uh, manifestation uh, so you can kind of keep going down the rabbit hole once you have better tools to diagnose patients more precisely and uh, the more you think about it the more these labels uh, are like very stringent and sort of inflexible. Uh, so I have this label NF2, which which means I have a certain issue that you can uh, like phenotypically determine. You can see like tumors on both hearing nerves. There there are certain criteria uh, that um, that are used to diagnose me with this. But some of the um, therapeutics, uh, some of the uh, platform technologies, they they are not necessarily targeting nf2 they yeah. might target a, a sort of specific type of mutation so you could also label me with 
the type of mutation that I have, and maybe I overlap with people from another rare disease. So the the whole labeling system um, comes from another period right. where we didn't have these technologies. So that might change in the future. And if we can really um, become the rare disease platform and get uh, patients from with all kinds of rare diseases on board, uh, I'm really excited what, what that could lead to. Yeah. Earlier you said that it could be a gateway into something else. Um, can you unpack that a little bit? Mm, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, like if you go uh, further in the future, it might uh, might help also more common diseases. Mm. Uh, but um, the, the, the great thing about rare is, is to build this technology around rare diseases and rare disease populations that you don't need thousands and thousands of patients to try something so we have an opportunity to go really deep and focus on the quality of the data uh, which is essential for rare disease because you don't have thousands of patients Uh, so our product development and our innovation is centered around the problems that these communities experience Um, but then like once you have those solutions in place who knows that uh, what you can apply uh, to more more right. broader diseases, for example, as well. Yeah, and why couldn't um, you know flat iron or color or twenty three and me or someone with a bigger sort of or you know head start in terms of brand and customer base on a different segment? Obviously, why couldn't they do this, or, or why haven't they done it, or why don't they? Yeah, I think Flatiron is a pretty different model. Uh, they have an electronic medical record system, and they have hundreds of doctors, cancer mm-hmm. doctors, that use it. So they're focused on cancers, and uh, they extract data from those records that they have from the EMR. Um, I think with rare disease, it's really hard because it is a long-tail problem. There's 7,000 of them. Right. In some conditions, there are literally 100 patients in the world. And so the traditional way of drug development is you go to these clinical sites like Stanford yeah. or Boston Children's or Harvard, and then you find patients there and you get their information from those sites. And that's what Flatiron does. Yeah. Um, but that's impossible in a long-tail model when you're looking for these patients who may not even have been identified yet. And so you actually have to go directly to the patient themselves in order right. to find a critical mass. Uh, and that's why we went to this direct-to-patient model. And right. there's a lot of challenges, but then also benefits to the direct-to-patient model. Challenges being, of course, you have to create almost like a consumer experience. Um, right. But at the same time, because you have their consent and the ability to recontact them in the future, you can do prospective studies. You can right. get their genetics, you can enroll them in future trials because not enough is done about every rare disease where you do need to get more information from these patients on an ongoing basis. Yeah. It is interesting. I mean, we talked about the long tail nature of this market. What other markets or, or, or what's another market where you find sort of analogous to rare? Because I, most markets I look at are not long term. Uh, long tail driven they're the opposite uh you know venture capital for example you're looking for, for the outliers but even like books movies i mean uh so many things are hits hits driven from um and the long tail doesn't really matter what's another market or whether other things that you think are sort of analogous in terms of people who, who aren't coming to rare like, like can give them a better idea of, of what it's like yeah i mean there's a couple i mean there's i mean even if you think of reddit it's like a giant community yeah. online or like indiegogo kickstarter where there's yeah. this long tail of uh small business ideas and and technology builders right. that uh, are all on a common platform that helps them build the infrastructure to make their yeah. their products a reality yeah kickstarter is a great example huh. if you look at the products um that are become available through Kickstarter, they would never reach right. the market in any other way. Mm. But through Kickstarter, they find this niche group of people that really want it and yeah. want to back it. Um, so that, that's a pretty pretty good example, I think. Yeah. yeah, across all rare conditions, the dynamics are very, very similar, even though, of course, the, the patient communities and the diseases are very different. And so the challenges they struggle with, the technologies they need, and the infrastructure that they need to succeed are all very similar. And so it's about it's kind of like, um, Anna used to mention this, where it's like Uber or Airbnb would have to launch in every new city um, in a replicable manner. And that's kind of what we're doing. We're launching in new conditions, but the playbook is and, and the challenges we're solving are very similar. Yeah. And how have you evolved that playbook over time in terms of 
what, what's been most effective versus what you've sort of thrown away or thought would be effective but wasn't. How has that playbook evolved over time? Uh, yeah, that it's, 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 it's still evolving. Yeah. It's, um, it's massively complex uh, to get it done. But, uh, you know, as we move along, there are more and more tools uh, in, in the toolbox that we develop. There are more and more issues that we keep addressing um, for patients. Like, you know, we, we think that if uh, patients get an opportunity to see our office, uh, you know, sit with us, talk to each and every one of us, see what we do and why, uh, that there will be no doubt for them to join. Uh, but, you know, their, the interaction time we have with them is usually like a few minutes on the website. So <laughs> compressing uh, all of that into, um, into like a, a short message and gain their trust, you know, know that we have their back, you know, they can, uh, they're in control. You know, they can opt out of the research consent if they don't like us anymore, uh, which means you're creating real accountability right. to patients. So if, you know, if this works, it becomes big and rolls out and we have all these rare conditions and all these patients, um, we are kind of their voice because we need to keep them happy. We need to do things that benefit them in order to make them excited uh, for it. So it works both ways. Um, Trust (laughs) works both ways. Yeah. And in a way, like, yeah, we're really trying to uh, put rare disease on the map and make it even bigger. Um, It's very counterintuitive. Like this, uh, yeah, just like all these long tail problems yeah. like oh yeah it's it's a such a small thing like no it's really it's really big yeah. <laughs> just no one has figured out a way how to bundle it and uh and it seems it you know it's hopefully it will be inevitable that these things need to be bundled with the new um technologies that we have available yeah. um it, it's it's just really hard to develop a therapeutic uh, for like a few dozen patients right? right it's just it costs too much money so in a way you're you're trying to on one hand you're trying to make the diagnosis more specific and m- make the diseases even smaller in order to provide a better therapy but on the other hand you're trying to bundle and expand your label across many of these rare disease populations to make it bigger again um yeah this is really interesting yeah. Totally. The earlier we talked about how um, you're putting rare disease in the map, and there are rare conditions, and there isn't there's an infrastructure for it yet. So when you're entering a new market with creating you know, a new category, how do you think about where on the like on the stack do you need to build first? What's the most important infrastructure that has to exist before other? Because when it's so new, you can do a wide number of things. How have you thought about that? Yeah, I think we always put patients first. So we always start with the patient. We uh, sign up patients first. We talk to them. We learn about the condition. We learn about uh, what studies they're interested in, and we get ambassadors on board. Uh, because without them, we, you know, there's no there's no use for drugs <laughs> or the industry. And so we start with them, and then we start with researchers. Uh, and then at that point, when you have the support from the patient community, and you have all these patients right. signing up to your platform, then um, that's when you provide value to the industry. Um, so that's kind of always how we start. And then we engage industry and then you get to kind of dictate the rules. So right. one big problem in drug development is um, keeping the data from trials exclusive. Right. So if you paid for it and you invested all this money into creating this resource and all this data, of course you want to keep that data to yourself and not right. share that. But oftentimes, even when a drug fails, that data is kept private and siloed. Right. And so that's really difficult in rare disease when you only have a thousand patients uh, worth of data to go around. And so we're really trying to proactively build these resources with patients um, and make them widely usable across many yeah. rare disease drug companies. Why don't you unpack a little bit how that the intersection works between patients, uh, industry, and, and research, and how uh, you'd like it or expect it to, to change over time? Yeah, patients need to have a more central voice in drug development and you see that um happen a lot where when patients voice are missed and then the the drug doesn't 
achieve its its goals because it was being built for the wrong endpoints or trying to solve for a problem that patients didn't care about. Um, So right now it's really hard to do that because uh, drug companies traditionally find patients at these clinical sites, at these hospitals. So that's already pretty difficult now that patients are all on Facebook and they all have Facebook groups for every rare condition. You can find them much easier. Um, And on top of that, drug companies also can't access their, the medical data from patients because there, there needs to be a firewall. Uh, so legally, they, they can't do that because uh, then it would be biasing the data. So right. that's why they always work with a third party, usually a contract research organization, that goes out and gets the data on their behalf, process it in an unbiased way, and then give it back to the drug company so that they can submit it to the FDA. So um, over time, we think we really want to close that link between patients and drug companies because drug companies need answers and data from patients to make their drugs happen. Patients want a drug. And so um, when we started this company, it it was the mission tied so well with the business model. And that was really one of the reasons why we continued down the path. Yeah. Yeah. It's really the, we're really to try to create a glue between all all these uh, different parties. So, and we are trying to engage all of them. So there's the, the researchers, they have like unique knowledge. There's an everywhere condition. There are a bunch of people that know a lot about the condition. So you want to have them participate and capture this. Um, yeah, the different industry partners and of course the patients, if they could play a more central role, they hold the key to unlock it. So the only th- uh, thing the, the patient needs to do is they have to, the decision to join or not, but you don't need a very complex uh, contract that you have to negotiate for a very long time uh, with each and every hospital. Like the patient can choose whether they participate or not, and that is a choice they currently don't have. Yeah. Um, it currently goes, you know, completely behind their back. They don't even know what's happening. <laughs> uh, so we really want to offer them a choice to, you know, be be part of it and not be a bystander. And by doing that and organizing it, uh, since we are accountable to patients, we can be the glue right. uh, between all these different parties. So in a, in a world in which RDMD achieves its goals, how might, let's say I develop a rare disease uh, and, and five years from now, uh, and RDMD is, is, is on the path to success, how is my journey looking different in RDMD world mm. um, versus you know, uh, a couple of years ago where, where it didn't exist? What was that tangible, different experience? Yeah, so five years from now, uh, <laughs> hopefully... Um, well, I'm rich on Bitcoin, so... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. hopefully we'll you know, have a program uh, for you, uh, so then uh, you would be able to join a community of other patients and uh, create, be part of like a central research data set. Hopefully that incentivizes many different companies uh, to develop drugs and to expand their platform um, to be useful for your uh, rare disease, for the label that you got. Um, and if uh, we are not working on your disease yet, hopefully you will be able to start <laughs> kickstart your own uh, community and, totally. and get it going. Uh, ultimately, like we really want to uh, make the rare diseases more interesting for the industry to work on. So even if there is no program yet in existence, if you build all these resources um, prior, then your disease literally becomes more interesting. It's it's been fascinating to me to see how much of this is just people deciding to work on the problem. Right. Um, it, it, that is maybe one of the most fascinating learnings I had. It, if you're not in healthcare, everything seems so far out and so like magical, mm-hmm. like drugs, how you even start. But in the end, it is really just people that decide it's important and there is an opportunity and I'm going to work on this disease. And the, the, the sad reality is that you need... 10 initiatives for one success Um, but that makes it even more important for this to be a central resource and not everybody trying to reinvent the wheel and do this on their own because we need to just open the 
access in the market uh, to right. these rare diseases. So you can have different players. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say a large problem in rare diseases, you often don't understand the disease itself. And so it's hard to even think about a drug program or how to design a clinical trial. And that's what's still stopping a lot of these rare diseases to, to advance. And so as we learn more about various rare conditions, we're already seeing overlap between many of them. And you'll see different pharma companies in a new rare disease basically model their design of their trial off of a very similar rare condition. And at the end of the day, conditions are just made up of components of different um, elements of the disease, whether it's weakness, muscle weakness, or lab measures, or uh, ability to see, ability to hear. And so we end up creating all of these modules across rare conditions um, that can be leveraged by a, a new company working in a new disease, where they're really just trying to understand a very similar condition that's called something else. And Nancy, can you talk a bit more about how you think about business model and maybe just zooming out a little bit in terms of financing of how these drugs get get developed and what are the incentives of these these biotechs and how you expect that might change over time? Yeah. um, At a high level, the drug development process starts from science, you know, in a lab, usually academic labs, and then they go to phase one where you're testing the drug in healthy people, and then phase two and three, and in rare disease, those are often the same phases, it's very shortened, uh, where you're testing the drug in patients, and then you get your drug approved, and then you still need to understand how the patient community is doing on this condition so that you can look for different opportunities to make the drug even better or create a new drug to address a sub-cohort that you didn't um, properly help. Um, so at all stages, uh, we see we, we see a very clear need for our, our platform, and we're working with companies in every stage. Um, I think it's interesting because on the commercial side, uh, that's where... Uh, that's where the drug companies have a pretty clear visibility on their own revenue model. And that's where companies like Flatiron and other companies have, have basically sold their platform and their data where we see a lot of interest is on the clinical side. So actually the R and D and the drug development where you're effectively working on science projects and milestones and projects as a, as a drug company. And you can't even see two years ahead. (laughs) And so it's really important to get, the best data there uh, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to go past to your next milestone. But at the same time, how do you create a, uh, a sustainable revenue model uh, as RDMD working with these kind of companies? So you kind of have to get creative. Um, but generally what we think is these companies will continue to work with us, even if they're working with us on just one program right. or one project, um, because there's nowhere else to get that information at this quality yeah. on those patients. How, how have you thought about getting creative to the extent you could talk about it? And how, how do you, more importantly, what sort of general principles do you advise for other startups who are having sort of long vision of, hey, we're going to capture this unique data and, you know, and be able to monetize it. But in the beginning, we need a way to, one, get the data and to stay alive um, <laughs> until we can do something with that really valuable long-term data. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, getting the data first, definitely do risk that. And if yeah. you can do that, then you can move forward. And just get pilots, get um, real revenue opportunities. Uh, just really try to understand the value of the data. If it's a nice to have and you're kind of pulling teeth to try to say, well, we can get this and we can get this, that's not what you're looking for. If it's something where it's it's actually going to make a huge difference in their drug program. So, for example, with one company, uh, they very likely will use this data that we've collected to submit to the FDA to support an NDA, a new drug application. And that's huge, and that's huge value. So looking at where the data is needed most um, and knowing that you had, can work and proving that you ha- can and have worked in multiple phases of the drug development process can make it much more confident for, for the entire company to make bets on earlier stage research and development, clinical development stage programs. Yeah. And how have you thought about um, other potential companies that can be built in the space? If we're looking five years out, 10 years out, you guys are creating this category. Um, if, we're, if we're all VCs and we're looking at what other companies might be built in this space, and maybe it's a fraught question because maybe RDMD just cleans up everything, but uh, <laughs> what, what else comes to mind in terms of people who are curious about um, rare disease, rare disease and want to start a company besides, you know, first thing, join RDMD, what else um, might exist in, in the market? Like yeah. what companies will RDMD enable? Hmm. Yeah. 
I mean, one one thing that um, I've seen in the healthcare space is that the importance of collaboration is like there are so many companies uh, working in the field and everybody seems to do something similar if you like look at it from a distance. But if you look closer, you're like, no, they're working on something completely different. It is such a big space and the problems are, are massive and they, they have so many different aspects to them that you probably need a lot of companies and you need those companies to collaborate really well if you really want to make a dance um, and I, I think especially in rare disease that's why we are focused on enabling these collaborations and making that that more smooth um, especially there you need to really pull the the resources that you all have um, yeah so ho- I mean hopefully we would have made rare disease is more interesting and there would be a lot of companies that that work on rare in five years that would be really cool yeah yeah especially biotechs as there's all like technology is going to outpace um basically our ability to get clinical data and understand the disease so there's going to be a lot of scientific targets and compounds and therapies and ideas that are going to Uh, face this big bottleneck for what conditions am I going to go after next, you know, to understand. And so really enabling a lot of these new biotech companies. There's a lot of uh, companies in the machine learning computational space that are, that are popping up um, all chasing after indications. Um, Yeah. And, and helping them build this infrastructure that they need for clinical development and commercial as well. Yeah. And the, I remember being at, uh, at a dinner with, uh, for all RDMD investors, and I believe it was Andy from Livongo. Is that his name, Andy? The CEO of Livongo, who um, he asked a question about existing tooling, and one of the things you mentioned was, oh, they're using like pen and paper for everything. So, like, and he was shocked. And that's even someone as CEO of a big healthcare company. So what sort of, I guess there are a lot of people who are building, you know, like Ono was, you know, companies in the consumer space now transitioning to healthcare. What's sort of shocking or just different about building companies in the healthcare space? <laughs> Yeah, there are so many things. <laughs> I think, like, if I look at our team, uh, one of the things that I'm pretty impressed about every day is how many different sort of quote unquote departments we have. <laughs> uh, even in a small company, like, you, <laughs> you have so many different, uh, yeah, t- different sub teams in, in the team to get this, to make this work. You don't only, it's not only a tech company. I think that would be a really big mistake to make this, uh, only a tech company. It's, you cannot solve it with software alone. Right. Um, it's, you have to deal with operations. You have to deal with regulatory, with research, with the business side of things, community building. There's product development. Uh, it's, it's just all over the board, and you need to do everything really well, yeah. and everything needs to integrate really well. So, it, it, I mean, the, the metaphor of like uh, building the plane and flying it, like I feel it more intensely right. than in the consumer space, where you can, with, with a few people, um, you know, uh, create a really cool product that can take off. Like you need more resources if you want to do something in healthcare. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say healthcare is all about finding the right incentives for the right parties. Uh, because it's one of the only industries where the patient, the person who is about to use the product, isn't the one paying for it. And there's all these uh, crazy in, uh, incentive problems. And so that was the thing that we really needed to nail from the beginning of all of these stakeholders that we work with, patients, researchers, foundations, biotech. How do we align the incentives so that everyone wins? Uh, because otherwise it won't work. So right. that, that's mm-hmm. one of the biggest. Yeah. Uh even zooming out from beyond rare, just into general healthcare, Nancy, you were you know you were corp dev at Twenty Three Me, which sort of gave you a top down view of, of what's going on, and, and you know you have a private equity and investment banking background, and you've also helped out with us in terms of some of our you know analyze some of our uh, health investments. Let's say you were full time VC focused on, on on healthcare. What would your thesis be, or what are things that you'd be really excited about, or things that you'd not be really excited about? Like how would you approach the market from a from a VC lens in terms of uh, what's exciting right now for you? Yeah, um, there's so, there's so many things. Um, I think personally what I'm excited about is 
any company that sells to life sciences, yeah. uh, frankly, just because the sales cycles are shorter, uh, there's great value and there's great need. Um, and is the big one that was really successful Viva? Is that, is that an example? Yeah, Viva is an example. They're um, they're like the classic SaaS company yep. in the pharma space, uh, but companies like Flatiron, companies even like Twenty Three and Me. Um, I personally like the life sciences world much more than the healthcare, IT, and, hmm. and services world, although they overlap a lot. Um, and but wh- any- why is that? What's that? Why is that? Because there is a small amount of customers, and if you get them, you can make a big business. Or why do you prefer life sciences? Uh, I think selling to payers and selling to employers is just really difficult. Uh, proving the ROI can take yeah. years and years and years. And as a startup, it's really hard to prove that ROI and stay alive, but be able to get those long sales cycles down. Um, the, the companies that are doing really cool things with data are very exciting. So using uh, what's already being routinely co- co- collected in care or another setting to power research, life sciences, um, decisions even for payers uh, and health systems, that's really exciting. Yeah. And what's different about selling to you know life sciences companies versus selling you know, someone with an enterprise sales background is in SaaS might not might not realize or what's sort of unique to to building a strong sales team and strong sales sort of uh, company uh, for life sciences. There's actually a lot of overlap, so it's hmm. not cool. In fact, that different. A lot of it is understanding their needs, understand their timeline and budget. Uh, a lot of it's trying to get to the right person in the organization. So we sell to clinical development folks and commercial folks. And so in pharma, there's just a lot of different titles and different groups that all have very um, different functions. And it's a classic problem where the research team doesn't talk to the commercial team. So when they get their drug approved, there's this big gap. And so you have to almost talk to a lot of different people in different functions before you get to the right person. But that's also classic in enterprise sales. Yeah. I would say it does require an understanding of the science and of the the program itself and of the patient population. Um, but that's that's the only difference. Looking forward uh, with RDMD, well, what are you most excited about, Nancy? Um, a lot of things. I mean, this team that we're building is super mission-driven, and so just being around them every day is amazing. Uh, I think in the industry, it's crazy to think that you can go from patients signing up on a website to getting their data being submitted in FDA submission um, without necessarily a lot of middlemen in between. So you can go straight from patients to regulatory grade data. And that's something we're working on. Yeah. Oh, no, what would you add to in terms of yeah. what you're most excited about with the company? Well, that, that is definitely something to be excited about. There, there isn't really a specific thing. Like I really, um, I am, I am in general excited to be working on this problem. Um, I think, I think we have a, like a, a a long uh, future, hopefully ahead of us, uh, to to keep working on on the real issue. We, people having a big, uh, big medical problem that affects their life in a big way, uh, all being part of very small groups and feeling that they're, they're sort of left out, but uh, really creating an opportunity uh, for them to uh, to be heard, to have a yeah. bigger voice, and um, hopefully to. Uh, spin up all kinds of uh, therapy programs in their condition. Yeah, and for for uh, pe- builders who are listening to this, for for engineers who are listening to this, operators listening to this, and curious to explore, um, you know, what working in rare might look like. What uh, what might you tell them, or, or where can they learn more? Uh, working on in our team specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, I think also as Nancy mentioned, uh, the team is is very mission driven i think that's super impressive to see um you know everybody that that's there uh really wants to work on this problem and help uh, patients help people and um it's also a very multidisciplinary team yeah. uh, as i mentioned i think that's also um something everybody uh, is really excited about you're not working only if you're an engineer you're not only working with other engineers you're working with people that do focus on the research there is a regulatory aspect there's an operational aspect um so that i think 
those things uh, make it uh, make it very different. And you also have an incredible uh, investor base, uh, you know, led by yes. Not, 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 <laughs> not tooting our own horn, but led, uh, led by last round, led by Lux, but also some really great angels who you know built big companies in the space. Yeah, absolutely. Like the so the team extends, I would say, to yeah. uh, to our investors. What I just mentioned about the team is also true for our investors. Incredible backing, uh, incredible people, and also all like very mission driven that everybody sees the opportunity um everybody is in it for the right reasons yeah last words nancy no i mean rare is just a different world compared to non-rare and maybe one day that it will become the same world but it's such a different world that there needs to be a different solution needs to be different infrastructure different software but what we've noticed is even the people are different in rare the people in these biotech companies, the people working even as top research doctors at these top hospitals, the people that we recruit, the people that are advisors, our scientific medical advisors, they're all very mission-driven, and they're, it's almost like a different breed. Right. Uh, you, you know that they're here for one reason only, which is the patients. Right. And, and some of the people, or much of the team has, has uh, a lot of experience, but for, if you're a talented engineer or designer, you can come in with having no experience and get up to speed pretty quickly. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think um, uh, Leo, Bernie uh, uh, had any healthcare appearance before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And there's a lot of interesting product problems, uh, UI problems, data architecture problems to be solved. Um, So the the problems that we're trying to solve in the, the products are actually quite interesting from an engineering perspective. Yeah. Yeah, we we do apply a lot of creativity to the problems that we are solving. Uh, you, you can't really uh, pull something from the shelf that yeah. often. Um, so, yeah, it's, people are, are very creative and, and driven to learn. And uh, I think that's really important. Yeah, and it's a great note to, uh, note to close on. Uh, the company is RDMD. Uh, it's one of the uh, most inspiring companies that we, we've ever worked on. And, uh, and you guys are the most inspiring founders. Uh, so thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 